This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week is a little bit of a mashup show. We have a brand new chat with actor Richard Harris, who is appearing in an August Wilson play in St. Louis, and who I had hoped to chat with earlier in May when the play first opened. But our chat plans got thwarted by a change in schedule, so instead he is joining me on this week's show as the play comes to a close. Then we're going to revisit a chat from last year with jewellery artist Alison Norfleet Bringer. Alison will be in town next weekend for the Columbia Art League's annual Art in the Park Festival, so I thought it was a good time to take another listen to my chat with Alison to get us all in the mood for thinking about buying art and remembering how what we see in an artist's tent at an art festival is just the tippy top of the mountain of work and learning and trial and error that goes into the artwork we see on a wall or on a shelf. And then to round off the show, I thought we'd take another listen to an interview I really enjoyed a few weeks ago with the incomparable Anthony Blodder, who has brought so much excellence in performance and voice to university and community stages over his past five years at Mizzou. So, first stop today, theatre! The playwright August Wilson is a towering figure of 20th century American theatre. Yet his work is unfamiliar to many theatre audiences across the country because theatre has long been a predominantly white space. And August Wilson wrote compellingly about the African-American experience, hoping, as he said, to raise consciousness through theatre and bring to the stage the poetry in the everyday language of black America. Back in February, Wilson's play Fences was performed for the first time on the Columbia Entertainment Company stage, directed by and featuring my guest, actor, director and music producer Richard Harris. Fences is one of ten plays that form Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle, which explores the lives and heritage of the African-American community through each decade of the 20th century, from the vantage point of Pittsburgh's Hill District. Wilson did not write the plays in chronological order, instead hopping between decades, so that the very first play of the century, Gem of the Ocean, was in fact the ninth play he wrote. But the very first play he wrote back in 1979, called Jitney, was set in that same decade. And this weekend is your last chance to see the play at the Black Rep Theatre of St. Louis and playing one of its nine characters is Columbia's very own Richard Harris. Richard, it is always a pleasure to welcome you back to Speaking of the Arts. The pleasure is always mine, Miss <laughs> Moxon. Thank you so much for having me here. And I am so honored to be here on your show once again. Thank you so much. Well, you created such a wonderfully intense and memorable production of Fences for Columbia audiences with a truly stellar cast. What did you think of the play's reception by local audiences here? 
I was so humbled and overwhelmed by all the accolades and the people just showing up and giving us support and even being interested in watching that art be displayed. I was just so humbled by the community. And I mean, it was absolutely a community theater amongst a diseased pandemic, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, where everybody had to be masked. And we actually went through a couple of uh, incidents where we had cast members being infected, which made the way for me to have to be in the play. And we still pulled it off with the help of all of the board at CEC, Columbia Entertainment Company, and the help of Enola White, who is the director of that theater. It was just so wonderful. It was pretty emotional to see how the community came out and gave us so much love. And uh, it was just extraordinary, the whole experience. And I thank Columbia so much for that. And for the cast, too, I mean, this is the first time that local black and brown actors have had a chance to be in a Wilson play. What was the feedback from the cast? Absolutely. And I think the feedback was something that was not surprising, that it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this place is full of talent. This place is full of people that can digest and deal with that kind of um, August Wilson, just deal with August Wilson in that capacity. I was pleasingly surprised, and I think they were pleasingly surprised that, that there was something out there that they could do because they had been in the shadows And I think it was a shadow of our own making, most of all, not letting it be known that they were standing there. That kind of talent was actually standing there in the community, not letting it be known that they were there with their hands up. And once they found a vehicle, it was like, oh, man, we can do this. We know this. This is us. This is speaking to me. And I mean, we pulled it off and it was like, hey, Columbia is full of talent. I'm presuming that you have plans to bring more of Wilson's Pittsburgh Cycle Place to Columbia. What's next? You know, I'm hoping that we bring all of them. I hope we finish the cycle. You know, you get a diploma or you get a certificate once you complete the cycle. And I'm hoping that Columbia will be on that list. And I think the next play, I'm thinking, and I could be overstepping, but I think the next one is going to be Ma Rainey. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that CEC is going to try to produce next. But, hey, I might be wrong, but I'm I'm hoping that all 10 will make it to this community. Well, this is the last week of your performance with the Black Rep Theatre in St. Louis in Wilson's play Jitney, which is set in 1977 in a Jitney cab company in Pittsburgh's Hill District. So give us an overview of the story arc of that play. Well, like you said, it's August's first play that he wrote, but it's the last one that actually made Broadway. It was performed several times before Broadway. Overseas, it won a lot of awards in the UK, but he had an opportunity to edit and re-edit and re-edit this thing until he made it a masterpiece. And um, it actually takes place when he was in his prime as a young man. So he knew what he was talking about because of uh, his own experience. You know, when he was talking about these guys, all of the guys in this play, I think had a little August Wilson in them, 
you know, or or his family was involved. Of course, you know, is his father and himself, they show up in all of his plays. And uh, this was no uh, different. It takes place in the 70s, which is a time that I was actually a budding teenager. I, I was like 16 when this play was the time that this play takes place. So I know these characters and um, it was easy to see myself and see my father and see my uncle and see my grandfather in these characters. Jitney, for those that don't know, is actually a gypsy cab service that serviced the black community because it was hard for us to get that kind of public transportation in and out of our communities because, of course, of segregation and Jim Crow and all kinds of things. So we took it upon ourselves in our own communities to have our own cab services, even though it was a gypsy, quote, gypsy cab service to the world. To us, it was a regular cab service. And it takes place in this Jitney cab storefront with these men that everybody in my community can see somebody in. Well, there's definitely a sort of revolving door component to the play is the Jitney drivers, they come on stage and then they leave stage. They're taking in the play, they're taking calls and they're leaving to ferry passengers. But there are three principal tensions that run through the play. There's an altercation between the gossip monger Turnbow and a Vietnam vet called Youngblood. There's a clash of father-son expectations between the station owner Becker and his recently released from prison son Booster. And there's a struggle of love and trust between Youngblood and his partner Rena. Expand those relationships for us a little bit and talk about those characters. So what I take from the play is this. The running theme in this whole play is responsibility. What it means to be responsible as a human being, what it means to be responsible as a father, a son, as a wife, as a mother, as a a human being, as a person in society. That's the running theme throughout this play. It's all about responsibility. Even my character, who shows up just slightly, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He shows up. I think I have maybe eight minutes time on stage. But his whole being is about giving a voice to responsibility, what it means to be responsible, what it means to shirk that responsibility, what you have to pay for responsibility and what you have to pay to shirk that responsibility. And I think that's what runs through every one of those uh, relationships that you talk about. Um, Turnbow, which is played by the incomparable Ron Hines, is clashing with Youngblood, who is played by Elijah Juan Davis, who is playing a Vietnam vet who clashes with this older man who's trying to tell him how he should his life should be led, you know? And so that's the clash and it's responsibilities involved with that. Um, Mr. Becker and his son, who has just been released from the penitentiary, they have a clash and it's all about the responsibility from father to son, the responsibility of the son in society, the responsibility of the father to take 
care of his son. You know, all of those things have uh, about responsibility. And then you have Youngblood and his new, and she's not actually his wife, but his girlfriend, Marina, who share a son together. And that responsibility of being parents and being in a relationship with each other is the tension there. So I think that the whole play is about, I think that August, what he's trying to do is trying to tell people, uh, trying to share with people the idea of responsibility. And that's what I got from it. And I'm hoping that's what everybody else will see. And August, in his own life, his father departed the family when he was young. And so he talks a lot about how the women in his plays are strong women, like his mother was. And and in this play, there is only one woman, uh, Youngblood's partner and the mother of his child, Rena. And she is struggling to hold the household together, to care for the son, to go to school herself, and to love a man who she thinks is being unfaithful to her. And it feels like, and maybe this is because it was the first play that he wrote, but it feels like Wilson's almost created a bit of a stereotype in Rena. How do you feel about Rena? I think that what Wilson, like he said in interviews, most of his women characters, he based all his women characters on his mother, on what she showed him, her life, what she experienced. And I think that Rena is just uh, his mother, what he saw, his mother being a young mother of all the kids of his siblings and how she reacted in life, you know, with the men and the relationship she had and with the responsibilities she had to raise those kids. So I'm not sure if it's a, a stereotype more than just an example of how women have to uh, navigate in the world, you know, especially when they are put on the pedestal, not only of of strong women, but the matriarch of a family. You know, sometimes it's the patriarch and sometimes it's the matriarch. And he grew up with a woman being the matriarch. So she has these sensibilities and she has this power and she has to have this kind of uh, strength to do certain things and to see certain things. And that's basically who Rena was. Rena is a superhero, you know, as far as I'm concerned, she's a superhero, but she's also a person with passion and empathy for the man that she loves, you know, and she's trying her best to hold on to this man. She's trying her best to guide him in the direction that will help him and help her family. And I think that that is a direct a line between August, what he felt his mother was doing, raising them and dealing with the relationships she had outside of his father. There are lots of moments I feel of miscommunication in the play that add to the tension. I mean, they're purposefully written in one of those being the conversations between Rena and her partner, Youngblood. And no one seems to be hearing each other. And it's the same with Becca, who owns the Jitney Cab Company, and his son Booster, who's out of prison. I just want to say, be quiet and listen to each other. And so he does such a good job of, of building that tension. And, and it's so indicative of society that we don't ever stop and, and deep listen to each other. We come with our with our fences up already. Absolutely. How do you feel as an actor in the play and, and seeing all of this purposeful miscommunication? How does that reflect back to you on where we are today? You know, 
That is so true, what you just said. And it does ring true that we, and I think that that was something that August was trying to let us know too, that we, sometimes we talk past each other. Sometimes it's all a lack of communication or it's a miscommunication. And I think that's why he writes the way he writes. And what I mean by that is that these are long monologues that these people give each other. Long speeches that you could tell that it's like 10, 15 years worth of something that you wanted to say is going to be said in these three pages of monologue. You know, and that's basically what's going on here. It's like when, like you said, Youngblood and Rena, when they're talking to each other, it seems like they're talking at each other and all of a sudden something clicks and now they're talking to each other. Yeah. And then stuff starts to resolve. That's the tragedy, I think, with Booster and uh, that's Becker's son, Booster and, and, and Mr. Becker. It seems that... Um, Notice I keep calling him Mr. Becker because my character calls him Mr. Becker. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it seems that it's like we can tell or you may be able to tell once you see the play. It's all up to your interpretation. But my interpretation is that you can tell that Booster's had 20 years. He's been in the pen to think about what he's done and what it has done to his family. And Becker has had 20 years to think about what Booster has done <laughs> to him and his family. But it'll seem like Booster has this zen about himself. Like I've seen and I've had time to think about what I've done and I've come to a peaceful place. And Becker has had that same time, but the whole time he is thinking, this boy did this to my family, and this boy, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind, I'm going to get him, you know. And so when they finally see each other, they see each other on two separate sides of a fence, and that's how they clash. With one person thinking one thing and the other person thinking, you know, this person thinking reconciliation and the other one thinking revenge, <laughs> you know, a retribution. You know what I'm saying? And so they talk to each other like that. And that's basically, I think that's what's going on in this world today. I think we talk to each other just like that on two separate sides of the fence with two separate agendas. And nobody's saying, you know, we all in this together. Right. Looking at the play through a 2022 lens, are there moments to you that feel either particularly vibrant and true or maybe noticeably out of kilter with the times we now live in? I think that's kind of complicated to answer because um, I think that um, a lot of it still runs true. Um, it will always run true how a man thinks of his son or how a son thinks of his father. Certain things will always run true, how older people think of younger people and how younger people think of older people. I think that's always going to be. But I think that um, as far as society, we've come, we've come a ways, not there yet, of seeing each other. We've made progress, but not enough. I think that one of the things that August has always said that was a problem to him is that integration. You know, that great thing about integration is a positive thing that Martin Luther King and everybody else that I know of that uh, was a civil rights 
in the civil rights uh, movement wanted was integration. And August was one of the first people to say, which was to his detriment and controversy, was that I don't think we should have left the South like we did. I think that if we'd have stayed put and held on to our own, we would be in a better place. He believed that. And I think that that's the one thing that's not available to African-Americans now. And that's a neighborhood that Mm -hmm. is vibrant because everybody are neighbors. Right now, our neighborhoods are non-existent. And if they are, they have what they have is left to them are people impoverished. You know, it used to be a time that you'd go to a black neighborhood and the doctor and the the gambler and the grocer and the preacher and the accountant, they all stayed on the same block. And they all had an opportunity to help you raise your child that was running around the streets, riding his bicycle and stuff. And Miss Franklin would say, boy, don't I'll tell your mama. You better get out that street. And you say, yes, Miss Franklin, you get out that street because you know she would. Well, now being integrated like we are, we don't have that kind of neighborly thing. But I also understand what my grandmother said when she moved to a white neighborhood and they burnt down our house. She turned to the neighbors and she said, if you'd have only given us a chance, we'd have been some good neighbors. You know, so there we have that paradox. And I think that's what a jitney shows us, that it shows us what could have been and what and how far we've come to make it better. But it's almost like responsibility. You pay for what you do. Sometimes this is a good payment and sometimes this is a bad payment, but you pay for what you do. You're responsible. So you play Fillmore in the play, but for a brief moment, the director of Jitney switched you to play one of the leads in the play, Turnbow. And <laughs> I am not going to just, I'm not going to talk about it. Now, I'll have a drink with you and we will talk about it, but I'm not going to talk about it on this show. I was going to say, I'm sure you're going to be very diplomatic about it. Absolutely. I'm not going to talk about it. Well, it was a lot. I mean, so you've now yeah. learned two parts. Oh, so maybe definitely. we should do Jitney in Colombia because you You could... know, if we do do Jitney in Colombia, I will not be directing. I will be auditioning for Turnbow. That's, that's for real. Because I know that character. I know that role. That's what I got from that whole experience is that I had an opportunity to rehearse and to learn that part. And I am so thankful for that, that I could take that with me wherever it's in my arsenal. I got it under my belt and I know I can, I can turn bow. I know that. It's funny when I read the play, I thought, well, surely you're Turnbow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seemed to have you written all over it. Well, I surely appreciate that. <laughs> and hopefully I won't what they call um, age out of the role. He's the oldest guy in the in the house, so I don't think I'd age out of the role. <laughs> I think I've asked you this before, but I don't recall your answer. Which is your favorite of the Pittsburgh Cycle plays? Oh, man, it's got to be Seven Guitars or Piano Lesson. It's a toss between the two of those. Because Seven Guitars is basically my life as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I just, every character there I, I have a relationship with, you know, or had a relationship with. 
And plus it's an ensemble piece and it's about the blues and it's about playing the blues. You know, all of August's characters are actually, I see them because I'm a musician. I see them as performers on an instrument. It's their instrument, but it's like the sax player has a solo. Then the trumpet player has a solo and the accompaniment from the bass player and the rhythm section with the keyboard player. And then there, here comes this, this blues guitar lick that comes through, you know, and that's basically what's happening with all of his plays. That's what tugs on my heart. And that makes seven guitars tug really hard on my heart because it's an ensemble piece and it's about a man searching to be a blues artist or a musician. And that's who I am. Of course, a lot of people say that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom would do the same thing to me. And it does in some ways, but it's seven guitars because of the way that he wrote it and why he wrote it. Have you performed in all of the plays? No. And that's the, see, that's, that's what's going to keep me alive and kicking. Like my grandmother <laughs> says, alive and kicking is because I am set And it's part of my bucket list to do all of these plays and to actually perform in all of the prestigious black theaters and to perform hopefully somewhere on or off Broadway in New York doing one of these plays. And so that's my bucket list is to do the cycle, first of all, and then to do the cycle in prestigious places uh, that black theater has been done, like the Cameroon, where another Missourian Langston Hughes cut his teeth. I would love to do that. Go to to Ohio and play that place or to play in True Colors down in Atlanta where Leon, Ken Leon, who's one of the great directors of August Wilson, has a a theater. And that's what brought me to Ron Hines St. Louis Black Rep, because it is one of the only places that actually have performed all 10 plays. Run is one of the only directors that has actually done all 10 plays. He's gotten awards for doing so. So he's on my bucket list. And so this was a bucket list venture for me. Okay, so you've got Black Rep Theatre and Jitney crossed off. (laughs) Yes, yes. So now I just keep moving. And the same thing about now that I'm a Colombian, I would love. And that's part of my hope is to get all of the cycle done right here in every one of the community theaters that's available. You know, I would love to see two trains running at Talking Horse. I think it would be a great place to do it. I would love to see an outdoor version of Jim of the Ocean out there at Maplewood Barn, you know, under the stars. I think that would be wonderful for Aunt Esther to look up at the stars and give that famous thing about her ancestors crossing the, the water. Oh, I think that would be so wonderful. It would be so amazing for Columbia to get the certificate that we have done all of the plays. I can't believe that more directors and more theatres have not completed the cycle. Absolutely. And I think that's something to shoot for. I think that we can do it. I think we can do it with the help of all the people in this community that are so passionate about theatre. I think we can. Well, Mm -hmm. if you would like to see Jitney at the Black Rep Theatre in St. Louis, you have only a handful of opportunities left as the play has only a couple of performances left tomorrow and Saturday at 8pm and a final 3pm matinee performance on Sunday. To find out more about the cast and play, go to theblackrep.org. And Richard Harris, thank you so much for giving us an insight into August Wilson's Jitney. Thank you so much, Miss Moxon, for having me <laughs> once again. You're so I formal. do love you so. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks, Richard. I'll talk to you soon. I don't remember when I first met the jewellery artist Alison Norfleet Bringer, but I do remember thinking that she was unforgettable in the loveliest way. Her passion for creating works of beauty that are imbued with her own desire to lift people's spirit is inspirational and part of what makes her unforgettable. Alison has won so many awards for her work that I could fill the next 15 minutes just reciting them. So I'll just say a lot. Her studio is in St. Louis, but she has been a regular visitor to Columbia for many years, showing her work at the Art in the Park and Fall into Art Festivals, as well as at Bluestem Missouri Crafts on South 9th Street. And I am so thrilled that I get to chat with my friend, Alison Norfleet Bringer, on this week's show. Good morning, lovely lady. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everybody. When I think of your work, the first thing that I think of is how you call each of your works your babies, which is so indicative of how much love you pour into each one of your designs. Of course, then you sell them. So that makes you a slightly odd mother. But <laughs> it's adoption. tell me about your relationship with the works you create. Well, it actually starts for me with a sketch. I'm one of those people who actually, even though I'm not as technically wanting every little piece to fit certain ways but for me I have to plan everything out so everything starts off with the sketches I start sketching out the design and that I include a lot of different aspects into my pieces such as drawings that are sealed and then put into the piece I just spend so much time with them so I'm going from the drawing to hand sawing to fabricating sometimes adding color onto the metal then sometimes doing the drawings and painting sealing those that and riveting everything together so I spend so much time with them they become my little my little babies and then I I look at it as my adoption center is my booth so (laughs) they get adopted out to their new home and some people post pictures and they show, hey, I'm wearing one of these pieces and I got it from this art fair and this artist and you got to check her out. And then I said, well, my baby has a good new home. <laughs> How long do you work on a, one of the bigger designs, the necklaces, the pendants that you do? I mean, is that a week's worth of work? Basically, yeah. I have a tendency to work on multiple pieces at the same time, though. So that's it gets kind of dicey of knowing exactly how long, but it's a, a strong amount of hours because I'll, like I said, just sketching it out. Sometimes I'll resketch a couple of times and I'm one of those odd people. I actually sketch with an ink pen because I get to the point that when I'm laying down an actual line, I want to commit to that type of shaping. I will redraw it, but if I have a pen and pencil, like pencil and eraser, it's never going to go anymore so that by that time it's it's a strong amount of time and not a strong amount of hours but it's a labor of love so that's the good thing well I mean you didn't start out in uh well you did start out in fine art right you don't have a fine art degree but in in retail advertising with an emphasis in fashion illustration yes so so when did jewelry enter the equation it's an interesting story I basically, I when I was younger, I said, I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to end up in New York. I ended up getting my first degree towards that area, and everything was fine. And I actually did art shows where I hand-painted different type of clothing, and I would design the clothing and then do the imaging 
and started out that way. Coming to St. Louis, though, my husband was getting a second degree and we came to St. Louis and I ended up working at a craft alliance in the, it was at that time the Del Mar Loop, it's now since moved, but I was a gallery assistant. They said, oh, you could take classes. And I said, well, okay. And you can have them for free. I'm like, ooh, that's nice. <laughs> and <laughs> I ended up taking a couple of jewelry classes and metalsmithing. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And then a couple of the, the department heads, if they said, you might want to consider, you could get another degree. There's a place there, Maryville University. And we know the teacher, she's really a good teacher. I think you need to run with this. This is, this. I think it's in your wheelhouse. And I wanted a way to combine my drawings and paintings that I've already in that fashion. And then I love drawing. I love painting and the metalwork and, and ended up with a second degree from Maryville University studying under Sherry Jardace. And that's how this all kind of, just because my husband was getting his degree, I, I guess I wanted to just follow him. <laughs> I mean, your notebooks of your designs are works of art in themselves because you really start from this fine art perspective and your love of painting and drawing. Do you ever think about, or maybe you do this, do you ever frame and sell your artwork designs? I have not as of yet. At the different art fairs, I will have the books out as the actual piece sells, I actually have the person who's purchasing the work signed by their drawing of their piece. It's almost like my little log. So I almost keep those almost like my own personal log. But with some of the different events I have done, especially for charity organizations, sometimes I will actually take the piece, take my drawing, and if there is an actual drawing that's on the inside, I make a copy of that, put it all into one frame so that customer will get those pieces. But I haven't haven't really thought about selling the actual drawings. I just love to show them because sometimes people will say, well, this is a really nice piece. Where did you get, I always got these odd questions, where do you get the components to put this together? And I'm like, well, no, no, I, I, I create, I hand saw, I say, you know, jeweler saw in a dream and, and then I'll lay the piece onto the drawing and then people really get it. Like, oh, it's from that drawing all the way to what I'm wearing. So, and then I say, yes. So I keep them around as the connection so they can feel that, that whole a line of how it actually came from drawing to what they're wearing. How would you describe your jewelry to people who haven't seen it or people listening on a radio say? <laughs> I I definitely makes media assemblage jewelry. I'm a person who really wants, rather than the art being on the wall, I want the art to be with that person. They can wear it and then they don't have to worry about having a dinner party and having, you know, showing the pieces on the wall. They get to wear it with them wherever they are. I really want it to be that wearable art piece. I like them to all be each one original. I have certain lines that I have somewhat multiples of, even though they're going to be different within themselves because I'm hand making each piece. But the larger ones that you're speaking of, I make that one. It is retired as soon as it finds its home. I write the date and it's over. That person owns that original. They don't see that. They don't see their self coming and going. 
One of the things that is incredible about your work is that every piece is unique, but there must have been times when you felt like, oh man, I really nailed this particular design and you know you could sell it 10 times. I mean, how do you stop yourself from repeating designs? The way that I kind of do that is that I want it to be such an original piece and I want it to be that that belongs to that person. That, that part of it, that connection with that customer, that patron, I really want them to feel special. That they don't go and they say, oh, well, which, which show were you at when you got yours? And that just, that idea kind of makes me just, my eye twitches. So, <laughs> so I just, I try to just really look at the fact of creating that piece letting that piece go to its home. And then it also helps me to say, well, I can't remake this. It helps to open me up to new materials, new products, new because I'm always finding different ways to create new pieces and to be able to kind of express where my direction is now. So it, it's, a, it's a win-win in that way. It's kind of a bad if, you know, if it's something I totally love and I'm like, geez, I won't be able to. But then I always look and I I have a lot of friends who, you know, different workshops, different things from across the country say, hey, you should try this new product. Or, hey, have you looked at that? And so that helps to ease that. Oh, geez, I can't be fresh. Yeah. (laughs) Or I can't make that again. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So what is your own jewelry collection like? Are there babies that you make and you just cannot part with? Yes. <laughs> yes, there there has been some. And so usually at an art fair, you'll see me wearing like these specific maybe five or six pieces that I get to the point I'm like, no, I, I, I can't do it. I, you know, I've actually placed them out, put the price tag on them and when I find someone getting ready to pick it up and I find myself like, like a small bead of sweat goes on the side. <laughs> it's like, oh. and then they end up going to another piece and then they find their baby. And I'm like, ah, and then my husband is usually James. My husband is usually with the shows with me. And he's looking at me like, don't you dare. And I'm like, okay. And then the next thing I know is I pack everything up. That one gets packed aside in my luggage. And then the other, you know, it's like, so the next day, I have a new tag out. I have another piece in that spot. He said, yeah, you did it. I said, yeah, I can't let it go. Uh Uh-uh, no, no, can't do it, can't do it. Is making your jewelry your full-time job? Yes, yes. At this time, definitely. I uh, used to work for a bead store, and they ended up closing. And once that happened and I, my hours started getting dwindling down, I found myself saying, well, either I go and get another job or I go ahead and go full tilt into doing doing the shows and doing my art. And I started just to really research galleries, to represent myself in galleries, to do the different shows, the exhibitions. So that's how it became uh, more towards full time. But you find out that it's kind of hard if you've already applied for shows, you've got accepted. And then your job says, well, we're not going to have hours for you. And then you try to get a job and they say, oh, we need you weekends. That's not going to work. So I just had to make that decision. It's like, I love what I do. I really do. And so I said, well, let's just go for it. 
<laughs> Alison, you are always such a joy to be with. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate this. Every now and again, I get to do what I like to think of as the arts exit interview. The last interview that a notable arts person gives before they leave our community and head out into the world to unite and conquer new arts pastures. It's always bittersweet as talent should spread its wings far beyond our own community, but sad, of course, too, because then we can't seek them out on our own local stages or in our galleries. Anthony Blatter may not be broadly known across the Columbia community, but he is a significant presence in the Mizzou theatre and music community. And I have been following him for a few years as he performed on various Mizzou stages. Last time he was on this show, it was in the midst of the 2020 pandemic when he was being fabulous in an online musical called All the Spaces. Since then, he's been in multiple productions, of which I've seen him in the musical Rent, singing with the Odyssey Chamber music series, and he is always a towering stage presence. But his time at Mizzou is coming to an end, and this summer he heads to Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton in Florida to pursue an MFA in acting. So it is a delight to welcome back to the show Anthony Coleman Blodder. Hello and farewell, Anthony. Hello. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> So you arrived here as a bouncy freshman from Parkway Central High School in Chesterfield back in 2017, way back in the before times. And now <laughs> half a decade has gone by and you have racked up a ton of accolades, awards, performances, and like all of us, probably a fine collection of face masks. <laughs> what would you go back and tell that freshman? Wow. Um, five years really flew. And... I would say to my 18-year-old self to really take your time and to not rush a darn thing because it's all going to fly. And so every moment that I've had here has been, um, you know, in, in the midst of if it's classes and then, and then I'm off to a rehearsal and then I have to practice for this and da-da-da-da-da. But I sometimes wasn't able to take the time to slow down and really say, wow, this is something that I'm going to cherish for the rest of my life because you only get one undergrad experience and then you're off doing the rest of life. And so, yeah, just to slow down and really take it all in everything. But realistically, I mean, did you ever have time to slow down? No, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not one bit, which I loved. I, I loved the, the fast pace busyness of what it means to be a music and theater student here at the University of Missouri. It's truly been a blast. The opportunities, the expectations, the um, countless concerts and things like that, the traveling, it's all been a blast. And yes, it's been fast paced, but I've enjoyed it all. It's super fun. We all have expectations when we enter a new phase of life. And I'm curious how Mizzou stacked up for you compared to what you expected going into it. It has been everything and more. When when looking at schools, I, I needed to be in a, in a place that accepted me for me and allowed me to do me. And Mizzou Music, Mizzou Theater has really welcomed me with open arms to be myself. And so the countless opportunities to perform, 
to act, to be on stage, to do any and everything has been just a blessing because you don't get that everywhere. And in this town of Columbia, Missouri, which I can proudly and happily call home here, the opportunities have been endless. And that's all you can want really in a in an undergraduate experience. Well, you have been nominated, applauded, awarded so very many times over the past few years. Tell me about some of the accolades that have meant the most to you. Hmm. Well, summer of 2018, I won first place in National Nats, the musical theater section of National Nats. And that was mind-blowing, truly, because it, it allowed me to go, okay, I'm, I'm here. People see me for me. And I can go on stage and kill it. And I gained a ton of confidence from that specific award. But most recently, it would have to be the feat of doing Rent in the fall semester, playing Tom Collins, Mm. and then playing Figaro in Le Nozze di Figaro in the spring. Those two shows back to back, really, um, they were very difficult to do one against the other. You know, if I just did one and then a couple years later I did the other, it'd be a different story. But for me and and the rest of these casts to do Rent in the fall and then a full 522-page opera in the spring, Italian opera, it was truly a, a feat that I was like, you know, looking back on it, I was just like, wow, I did that. And so I I, I look forward to to the other shows and the other projects that are coming up because I know that I can do anything now that I've done those two shows back to back because they were just monsters in their own rights. There is a lovely quote on your Facebook page from your voice teacher, Mizzou Associate Professor Stephen Tharp, who said, if it seems like everything is going Anthony's way these days, maybe it's because he works his butt off and always readies himself for the next great step. And that really comes across in all of my interactions with you and seeing you on stages. What are the things that really drive you? That quote made me cry when he wrote it on Facebook, and I'm tearing up over here now because... You know, you put in the work and you do the things and not all the time is it recognized. You know, you get the good jobs and the congratulations and things. But to have to have him say that on my Facebook page was just very uh, and it causes a lot of emotions because it's like, man, you see me. But to the original question of, of what drives me, it's the fact that I I can wake up every day and know that I'm doing what I love. It doesn't matter how much money I'm making. It doesn't matter where I'm living or or how I'm living or or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm doing what I love every single day of the week. And I can be a shining light for someone in the audience. You, You know, someone told me the other day, just in a general conversation, we as musicians and as artists never know who we're going to touch ever. We don't know how one instance on stage might touch somebody. And so knowing that, that I can do what I love and give that back to the younger generation or people who just needed to hear that specific song or, or, you know, or needed to see that scene or whatever, being able to do that brings me so much joy in that. And that drives me every day to wake up and do what I do because it's, it's a blast. And to know that I touch people or that I may be touching people is awesome. Mm. 
I'm sure this is true of any era in the theatre department, but you have definitely been surrounded by a body of incredibly talented fellow students, as well as teachers, of course. I'm thinking of Murphy Ward, Simone Sparks, Casey Lynch, Samuel Demuria, Jack Fulkerson, Renesha Green, and gosh, the list goes on. There are so many more. Tell me a little bit about some of the collaborations that you've been involved with, maybe away from the main stages and more with your contemporary students. That's been the best part is we as as a community, and this goes back to both theater and music, both of the areas cultivating such an incredible community with student body and faculty. You know, we we leave the stage and it's not like, okay, I'm going to collect my check and I'm going to go home and 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 that's it, you know what I mean? We we go out together. We we have dinners. We hang out. We play video games. We you, you know, we do those we do those things together. And so because we are outside of, you, you know, when we're off the stage, we do those things. When we come on the stage, when we get on the stage, it's that much more of a connection every time we get on stage because we actually are taking time to get to know each other and not just as actors, but as people, as artists, as food lovers, video game lovers, whatever the case may be, we're taking the time to really get to know each other. And so that's been a blessing that I have people around me that, that I can truly call friends and not just associates. Talk to me about your voice. You have a voice that straddles opera and musical theatre. You are a bass baritone. But at the age of, are you 23? Yes. At the age of 23, your voice is still very young, as bass voices don't usually mature until around 30 or older. So where do you want to take your voice over the next few years? I am hoping, first off, let, let me say this, I love that I have been given the opportunities to do both mm. because th- that's not everywhere. But th- the fact that I can, like I said earlier, go from a fall rent to a spring Figaro really says something about this university and these two departments that they let that happen. I am really looking forward to see where my voice goes in the upcoming years because, yeah, the male voice doesn't stop until early 30s, mid 30s. So I could be continually changing until then. And I'm hoping that it goes up. (laughs) Just just for me. (laughs) Like I love having rich low notes, but I would love to have a confident, comfortable G, G sharp A up top because it opens a lot of repertoire, a lot of characters that I can't necessarily play to their full potential at this moment in time. Do you control that or is that just your genetic makeup? Sort of, kind (laughs) of. With Professor Tharp, we work every day with warm-ups and things that are sort of stretching my vocal cords in the upper range. Mm. And so you you work on what you have, which I have a pretty decent low range and and mid-range so you work on what you have and then you do exercises and things, vocal exercises that that help stretch the upper range. So hopefully in time, my vocal cords go, you know what, the stuff you've been practicing, that's where we want to go. And so, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so they stretch enough to where I can do those things vocally, hopefully. 
Who knows? Well, let's take a listen to a clip of you singing. This is recorded earlier this year, and it is the song Funny from the musical City of Angels. Funny. How'd I fail to see this little bedtime tale was funny? I could cry to think of all the irony I've missed. What an unusual twist. Right at the end of it, funny. Who could see that this pathetic scene would be so funny? Once you strain to find the grain of humor underneath, life double crosses with style, forcing you into a smile. So it can kick you in the teeth, just desserts, we can all laugh till it hurts, at my expense I'm accustomed to working on spec, I always pick up the check, I think it's funny. Could top or make this comic opera more compelling Once you weave in some deceit to even up the score You'd have a soul on the floor That would be roaringly funny Sad enough, my life's a joke that suffers in the telly just another hoary chestnut from the bottom drawer I heard so often before That I can't laugh anymore And that was my guest Anthony Blodder singing Funny from City of Angels. So this summer, you are heading off to Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton in Florida to pursue an MFA in acting, which is almost a little surprising as I thought for sure you'd be going off to do an MFA in voice. Tell me about this choice. I was an actor lover first. And so going into an acting program and really fine-tuning a lot of the the things that I have and then completely reworking and reworkshopping the bad habits that I have is what I truly want to do. I want to I want to get this MFA in acting to really find myself as an artist and then the sky's the limit after that, you know, get this degree, possibly go get an MM in vocal performance in opera or musical theater or go to Germany or get my doctorate. It, it truly doesn't matter, but I'm, I'm going to continue to do all the things that, that I love doing. And this is just one little step in that career path. So many exciting possibilities. Right? Ah. 
It's been a tumultuous few years in the world of social justice and the arts' commitment to transforming its historically white performance spaces to be inclusive not only of black and brown bodies, but also black and brown stories has been under the spotlight. As you step out into your career, how confident are you that performance spaces are truly going to follow through on their commitments to be more inclusive and diverse spaces? Oh, they definitely will. We are seeing it happen before our eyes with Hamilton, with Joshua Henry on Broadway, with Waitress. We are seeing black faces in what seem to be white roles happening, but before our eyes. I hop on YouTube and I, I look up classical songs. And most of the time, I see white faces doing these arias and, and these art songs and things like that. But more and more, I'm seeing more and more black and brown folks who are stepping into that and doing those songs. And I'm, and I'm seeing videos with people that look like me, right? Mm. And that that is the most important thing, that we are seeing people that look like us on stage in those roles, because then that tells us, okay, you know what? I can do this too, because I see them doing it. But we are seeing shows, fire shot up in my bones, thoughts of a colored man, we're seeing all these wonderful, wonderful shows and, and operas being produced with all black production staff, with all black characters and, and actors. And it's truly a world that I'm excited to step into and a career path that, that I just I, I can't wait to start and really sink my teeth into. Final question. <clears throat> will you still accept my emails when you're famous? Of course I will. <laughs> you better email me. <laughs> My guest has been Anthony Bladder, frequent performer on Mizzou stages over the past five years and also seen on the Odyssey Chamber Music Series stage. He leaves Mizzou this month and heads off to Florida to pursue his MFA in acting. And I feel sure he is destined for a career that is full of accolades. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the Arts Exit interview and for making time to chat and happy graduation. Thank you so much. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, actor and director Richard Harris, artist Alison Norfleet-Bringer, and actor Anthony Blodder. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally... Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.